This episode of Politics Without the Boring Bits is brought to you by Luton Rising, owners of London Luton Airport, the UK's most socially impactful airport. Find out more at lutonrising.org.uk. This episode of Politics Without the Boring Bits is sponsored by BT, because BT means business. BT knows that businesses come in many shapes, sizes and guises, from the person just starting out at their kitchen table to the biggest employer, which is why no matter what line of work you're in, they've got your back to help you succeed and do what you do best. No doubt connectivity is a must in Westminster, and it certainly helped us to get this episode created and distributed to you listening right now. BT already connects more than 1 million businesses and public sector organisations, offering secure and reliable connectivity. Nearly three quarters of people running a business or side hustle feel they couldn't do so without reliable broadband and mobile connectivity. That's why having connectivity you can count on is a must for business, whether it be facilitating multiple devices being connected at once or making team calls or guest Wi-Fi access for customers. BT's connectivity helps keep you and your customers happy. Whatever your business, BT's got your back. Search BT's got your back. Hello, this is the Redbox Podcast. I'm Matt Chorley. Coming up on today's episode, how's the pandemic changed our politics? John Curtis and Gillian Pryor pick over the latest British social attitudes survey. Really interesting, uh, the impact it's had on our attitudes towards uh, work, benefits and trust in the government. So that's coming up. Also, I've been speaking to John Humphreys, Radio 4 legend John Humphreys, about uh, 55 years since the uh, disaster in Aberfan. Uh, so you can hear that on the podcast in just a moment. But first, as ever, we kick off with our columnist palette. It's Thursday. So it must be night at the Marriott. It's India night and James Marriott. Morning, India. Good morning. And uh, James Marriott. Morning, James. Good morning. Uh, now, India, before we begin, we need to mention that you might have to depart at any moment. Is that right? That's right. <laughs> That's right. Don't. I'm so stressed. I'm so stressed about my sheep. India, explain what's happening in your garden. We have sheep and they live in a field. And these are new sheep, and they are extraordinarily um, clever sheep who just keep getting out. They keep getting out. They, t- I mean, cattle grids are designed to keep cattle in, not sheep. So, but you know, there's a kind of m- welded middle bit on a cattle grid, and they just tiptoe all forty-two of them across the cattle grid and just roam the garden and eat all my stuff. And I keep looking out of various windows, and there's a sheep. They've got out three times this morning already, and it's only about half past ten. So, yeah. I don't know. Uh, but but they are your sheep. No, they're not my sheep. They're tenant sheep. A man oh, brings see. them. Yeah, he, we store his sheep for him and they keep the grass down <laughs> the, in the field. And so that's yeah, really yeah. good. But, you know, no I, no, I wouldn't have sheep. They're really hard work sheep. Things always go wrong with them. Yeah, no, no. I, my um, my uh, gran and uncle uh, used to have uh, a lot of sheep, and so a lot of my childhood was spent sort of standing in gateways and getting having been stood, having my foot trod on by sheep, uh, yeah, which exactly. hurts a lot more than you'd think. They're quite dense, aren't they, sheep? Um, as in physically, I don't solid. Really yeah, I mean solid, very, solid. Yeah, yeah, yeah if, you, if a sheep happy. gets trapped in a hedge, you know, you, it needs takes two people to get them out. <laughs> Freaking sheep. James, James, have you got anything to offer to this or should we move on and talk about your column? Have you got any views on sheep? Um, I, I think I'm the one member of this panel who with no with no views or experience of sheep. But I, I'm going to take <laughs> I'm going to take your experience as, as valuable if I ever become involved I, with I, them. I uh, I used to um, my uncle used to milk sheep. Anyway, don't need to get bogged down in that. But I know my way. I know my way around a sheep. I've done lambing. <laughs> I can milk a sheep. I'll, I'll pop round later with you and see if I can help out. Oh, thanks. I'd appreciate a hand actually. <laughs> James, let's talk about your column, which, if I'm being completely cynical, seems like the most blatant attempt to get a lot of people to wish you happy birthday in the comments underneath <laughs> that I've ever seen since the, since I wrote a column about spending my birthday at the Labour Party conference. However, your point is you're going to be 29 tomorrow. Is that yes, right? Yes, that is my point. And well, it's funny and you're, be- you're worried that, that, that your 20s have become pointless. Um, may- maybe. I mean, I'm always worrying about my own pointlessness. The actual, the kind of the, the cynical motivation behind it was not to get people to wish me happy birthday although that's been incredibly nice and I have a lot of people to say thank you to in the below the line comment section after this but to uh, persuade Times readers that I'm not in fact uh, doing my GCSEs this is quite a common misapprehension in the below the line comments um, and I think people have might, might have got the hang of the idea that they think I'm about 22 but I think it's time to really kind of draw a line under it all and explain that I am I'm increasingly old um, 
Yes, so this was just about, I was getting to the end of my 20s and I was kind of thinking um, in my slightly sort of uh, nostalgic, past-obsessed way, uh, kind of what was it all for? Because um, just thinking about the way that, so, I mean, it's kind of, I suppose, relatively obvious to say all those kind of life milestones that used to make up people's 20s, getting married, starting a career, buying a house, um, having children, uh, have all sort of been shunted, shunted into your 30s. And it kind of made me think, what does that leave this sort of like decade expanse of time for? All those kind of, you know, the kind of things you'd be striving towards. Um, no one is really achieving those. Um, you know, all the average statistics, people are doing these things in their 30s. So it's kind of, I don't know, is your life just a failure if you've not done, if you've not done any of these things? But actually, I, thought, but, but I actually thought the opposite because you pointed out that new parents in the UK, the average age is 30 for women, 33 for men, average first-time buyer... Uh, home buyer is 34, first time to get married is 33 for men, 31 for women. But actually, does that does that mean that actually, because everyone is doing things later, that you're all right having not done any of those things? That actually, if the average age was everyone was doing those things at 25 and you'd got to 29, then you'd be a failure. Whereas now, uh, dossing about for 10 years is completely fine for people yes well i strongly want to promote this idea um, uh, <laughs> um and yes so I, I think basically um i was reading some kind of interesting um american american sociologist called jeffrey arnett who basically says this kind of new decade of life which nobody's ever quite lived in this way before um it represents this kind of new development in the way in the kind of human lifespan that he thinks is kind of equivalent to the emergence of adolescence um in the 20th century you know no one really thought of teenagers but much before i think the sort of 20s and especially in the 50s when they became this new cohort of people who were increasingly independent still living with their parents had more money to spend became huge drivers of i mean you know you think how much of 60s culture was just driven by um people in their teens uh buying magazines buying records this whole kind of new cultural force and he says what's happened is that this this new life phase that's opened up is kind of equivalent of equivalent importance and this whole new way of experiencing a great big chunk of life that up until about i don't know you know 20 30 years ago was quite was quite uncommon um and this sort of like you know very precarious slightly anxiety inducing existence most people spend their 20s living is this sort of fascinating new social phenomenon and my argument was basically if everybody's doing it and everybody feels anxious maybe maybe feeling anxious and slightly drifty is the point and you know we shouldn't <laughs> we shouldn't be judging ourselves against the standards of um uh, all, all those baby boomers who are you know you know buying their houses and getting married and having children at the age of you know 23 and things like that what, what do you think about this india because I, I i i'm aware that i'm slightly odd in the, uh, well i know in lots of ways but i i got married when i was 26 became a dad when i was 27 which is quite unusual uh, certainly amongst my sort of friendship how old are groups. you i'm now third how old am i now 39 right yes i did the same i got married at 25 and had my eldest child at 26 who is about also, happy birthday, James, for tomorrow, who is also about to turn 29 in December. I mean, I, oh, I was so you really can look at it through both things. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, I was really interested in this column because I spent quite, well, actually not so much anymore, but I spent quite a lot of my time wishing that my older children, who are 28 and 25, would sort of slightly get on with it, you know. Um, and, and and quite often, but also I, I I mean I think it I think it quite often sort of reading the papers and things you know when people are being people in their early or mid twenties are being incredibly sort of solipsistic and saying oh I am adrift and I'm doing this and I'm doing that you know I think older people think that that particular cohort are a bit slow to kind of get off the starting blocks compared to their parents' generation. Um, and I love the idea, actually, of reclaiming that decade, reclaiming your 20s as a time to kind of find your feet. And James um, mentions a couple of uh, American novelists, uh, Updike and Yates, who are very good at identifying, writing about that kind of claustrophobic malaise of, of, of women in particular um, getting married too early. So I think it's all great. I just sort of wonder what happens further down the line because you know the, the the goodness of having your children and doing all of that stuff reasonably early is it frees up time on the other side for you to rediscover your adolescence or whatever um, <laughs> i just think the later you start the longer you're in it and then you become old and then you know you don't have that kind of gap before becoming old if if everything gets pushed back but it's a really interesting column 
Yeah, it, James, there is a risk you, you won't have time for midlife crisis. That's, that's basically <laughs> what we're establishing. <laughs> um, uh, in terms of um, one thing I suppose that 20-year-olds uh, that could do um, at India is they could just read really bad books because they've got nothing else better to do. I loved your column on Sunday. I know it's the oh, crime writer Mark Billingham who started all this about uh, if you're not enjoying a novel after 20 pages, stop reading it. And you think he's right, but you think this applies to loads of things in life. Yeah, I think it has very wide application from sort of relationships to books to terrible plays, you know, sitting in the theatre going, why am I here? This is terrible. To to going camping every year when you hate camping. To You know, I think we just sort of... It's a sort of combination of manners and guilt. And you just think, oh, well, I've bought the book. Now I might as well finish it. You know why? It's a waste of life. Um, but I, I mean, I agree with you. And particularly with books, I give up on books. My wife plows through them, huffing and puffing and tutting all the way through it. Uh, um, and I said, well, just stop reading the other thing. What about yeah, the counter argument? There's sometimes. You know, oh, well, Sometimes, you know, if you stick with something, it might improve. Sometimes TV series start off slowly and they get better. Is there not a risk you miss no. out on great things? No, I don't think you miss out on great things. I think if I think if somebody's book only gets going on page 170, then it's not a good book. <laughs> James, I'm going to I'm going to hazard a guess here. I think you plow through terrible books. No, you're, you're wrong. I, I thought India's oh. column was fantastic and I, oh. I completely agreed with her. Nobody who's worked uh, on the book's desk of a newspaper um, can ever succumb to the idea that all novels are worth reading. Uh, I've read some terrible <laughs> novels and books have this kind of horrible conspiracy around them where we kind of think they're worthy in a way that we don't really think TV is worthy. Yes, so yes, true. you kind of made it feel morally bad for abandoning mm. a book if it's boring because maybe it's like not a bad person. maybe it's yeah, like improving exactly. you somehow um and so many i think i think i have i have a feeling that a lot of authors get get let off on this and they're allowed to write very boring very pointless books because everyone sort of thinks oh well you're an author you must be improving everybody especially if it's a bit a bit pretentious i feel like mm. pretentious people get away with a lot get, get mm -hmm. away with a lot in novels my, my, my one exception to this rule is um if there's a classic novel that I find a bit boring, but I know that a lot of people I respect have said that this is worth my time, and I, I, I then assume the problem is me, not the novel, uh, and I will I will persevere. But I think I think it's a very good rule, and I, I agree actually. One of, one of my one of my big bugbears is um, the idea that wine um, is particularly special, which I noticed India picked up on, and I think all <laughs> wine tastes broadly the same, uh, and that's another kind of vast, slightly pretentious conspiracy. Yeah. Beyond a certain point with wine, you can't tell. I mean, I could tell the difference between a three ninety nine bottle of wine and a mm, thirty quid bottle of wine. Above thirty quid, not really. I think I I I think I think anything over ten. I've yeah. got anything over ten pounds. And I think I, th the... I still think ten pounds is a bit fancy. Yeah, I think all the nice yeah. wines are randomly distributed across the price ranges. You can spend a lot and get a nice wine or a bad wine, or spend not much and have the equal chance. I think I just think. I think that needs, there's, there's a deep investigation there for the Sunday Times Insight team. And that thing, you know, it's crazy that thing that people do of sitting in a restaurant, hating the wine, but dutifully gulping it down anyway. What's the point? Send it back, ask for another bottle or don't drink it. Drink orange juice. Do Tasty. you think, is what, do you think, <laughs> sorry. <laughs> I thought you drank milk. Oh, I mean, love milk. Oh yeah, drink milk. No, I really like milk. <laughs> Milk in the bath, that's what you like. Um, <laughs> India, do you think that the experience of, and we're going to talk about the politics of, uh, the, you know, how the pandemic's changed politics a bit, um, a bit later, but do you think the last 18 months has made us all a bit more, life's too short, I'm not going to yeah, bother going to that thing, I'm not going to bother wasting my, you know, that actually, you know, if you are going to, you know, run the gauntlet and go and sit in a room full of people or whatever... Is it, it's got to be worth it. Maybe it's going to be with your particularly good mates or you are going to, you know, you're going to spend that bit more on a nice bottle or whatever. The life's yeah, too short for, for sort of crappy experiences. I think not being able to do anything has really, you know, you, you, we've all really noticed what we miss and who we miss terribly and what we just kind of don't miss and can take or leave. And I think there's a sort of general reluctance to go back to the stuff, whether they're a person or an activity of the stuff that we were actually quite happy to not have to do. Um, so, yes, I think people have sort of made their boundaries more rigid when it comes to that sort of thing. Is there anything, James, apart from sitting in the bath eating pasta, is there anything, James, that you've 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 stopped doing? Um, yes. I, oh, it's so boring. But um, I, I was obsessed with the idea that to have an enjoyable weekend, I had to go and sit in a cafe and have breakfast out 
that was my Saturday treat and I actually realized it was expensive and pointless. So now um, <laughs> now I have breakfast at home, but that's, I mean... You just, you just sit at home with a big glass of milk. Yes, and a, and a slice of toast, and that's the perfect start to the weekend. <laughs> <laughs> oh, I love the little insights we get into David's life every week. Inadvertently, inadvertently. If I told you at the beginning, I'm going to ask you what you uh, did for breakfast at the weekend. You wouldn't have, thought, you wouldn't have offered it up. This is lovely to speak to you as ever. India, get off and, and see how the I'm sheep are doing. And inspect. The perimeter, you, yes. You go and do that. And James, you go and have a deep bath. Uh, Indian Knight and James Marriott there. Um, you can read James's column online right now. Go online uh, in the comments. And you can do this if you're a subscriber. You can wish him a happy birthday. Indian Knight and James Marriott there. And, of course, you can read them in The Times every week. Just get yourself a digital subscription. Go to thetimes.co.uk forward slash Times Red Box. Now then, exactly 55 years ago today, saw the devastating collapse of a colliery spoil tip in the Welsh mining village of Aberfan. A tidal wave of slurry swept down the valley, destroying the village school. 116 children died along with 28 adults. More than a century on, it remains one of the worst disasters ever to occur in this country. The first reporter on the scene was John Humphreys, and I caught up with him, and he took me back to that day. Well, I, I was in the newsroom at uh, TWW, which is where I was working at the time, for a fairly short period. Uh, it was a Friday morning, and I... Um, was just skimming through the teletext coming in. You won't remember those. You're far too young. But it was, <laughs> um, it, uh, there was a report that, this was about 10 o'clock in the morning, there was a report that a tip had slid in the Merth Valley, the Taft Valley, and uh, it had uh, hit a village. I didn't take a huge, at least my editor, my news editor, didn't take much notice of it because, it was sliding all the time, but I did know the the, uh, the area very well. I'd lived there, actually, for, for a short time, actually in Aberfan itself, or in Merthyr Vale. I lived in Merthyr Tydfil as well. So I thought I'd jump in the car and drive up the valley, which I did, and um, I could uh, see immediately that something awful had happened because the, the women, all the, the valley in those days, was lined by miners' cottages, and the women were standing on their doorsteps looking up the valley, Towards Mercerville, um, Um and uh, and when I got there, it it it, it almost defies the description. And I know that's a pathetic thing to say, but I've been a hack for many many years. I've seen wars and disasters and droughts and earthquakes and God knows what. Um, I have never, from that day to this, seen anything remotely as awful as that. The the tip had slid down and we're talking about a lot of material 150,000 tons of colliery waste and it hadn't sort of slid gently as you imagine things sliding this was what well, was described by somebody i spoke to at the time as an express train roaring down the hillside there were miners deep underground deep underground a long way away from it, but they heard it. And what they heard, of course, and they knew immediately what it was, was the tip rushing down the valley. And they knew the potential of disaster because their children were in the school that was in line. And, of course, it crushed the school. They obviously, all of them, rushed up to the surface immediately. And when I got there, they were standing on this I, I i couldn't actually recognize even though i knew the, the, the valley and, and that particular village very well indeed i couldn't recognize it because instead of a nice little village with a nice little school there was just this mountain of rubbish this filth the crushing of the school and the miners were standing on top of this heap uh, they couldn't use machinery of course knowing that their children were underneath it uh and and they as i said they just rushed up from the colliery their faces were still black with with, with coal dust um and uh, well some of them had streaks down their face from the tears that, that, that were running down their cheeks uh, and they were digging for their own children who they knew had probably died and were lying beneath their feet. Some of them, some of them survived. A very, very few, only five survived. But every so often, you, one, one of the uh, one of the men would shout for silence, 
um, because he thought he'd heard a child crying out and we would all stand um, des- desperately silent and desperately hoping. Um, and as I say, not very many survived at the end of it, 116 dead children, 28 dead adults. And uh, and in the days that followed, I watched them carrying the bodies out. So one little girl being one of the survivors being carried away by a big early policeman, a little tiny slip of the thing about seven years old. Um, five of them, as I say, had, had been saved by a very heroic dinner lady who had, as she saw the slurry coming, crashing down and heard it crashing down, she threw herself across their bodies. And some of them did survive, but um, it, it, it was, imagine that, imagine digging through that mountain of of waste couldn't use machines at that stage, too dangerous, so they were using shovels and picks, knowing that you were digging for your own children. Just unimaginable horror. Unimaginable. Utterly, utterly, absolutely, uh, completely unimaginable. And I suppose my sense is that lots of people, uh, younger people especially, may not have known about it, despite it being such an... Ex- just in terms of the number of people who lost their lives, just an extraordinary disaster. But then, of course, it was it was recreated by the Crown a couple of years ago uh, now. And I just wondered, and actually, as someone who hadn't seen it, it struck me, it, it really captured some of the, the whole of, of, for me. I wondered, having been there and seen it, what did you make of that, that portrayal? I didn't think it was too bad, to be honest. I was prepared to be appalled by it. I thought they would dramatise it in the worst way. How can you dramatise the ultimate drama, the ultimate tragedy? Um, But I don't think they did that. And there was some, the word seems silly in a way, but there was some respectful scenes. Um, I thought that, for instance, the cemetery scene would be uh, overblown. um, And it wasn't. It was, it was, Pretty well done, I thought. Uh, they they told the story pretty clearly. I wish that they had um, spent a bit more time on the uh, because they were obviously they were interested in the Queen herself going there. And the clue is in the name of the program, the Crown. That's what uh, they they focused a large part of it on. Um, and the fairly shocking aspect of that, of course, was that the Queen did not go. Immediately she heard about it, unlike the, the Prime Minister at the time, Harold Wilson. She uh, took her a week to get down there, um, and some say that that showed that she didn't care, and it caused her a lot of harm. I think, I don't know, she herself regards it, I think, as the, um, as the worst misjudgment she'd ever made, uh, because, of course, we all expected her to arrive the next day, but she didn't, as I say. It took... It, it took a week, but nonetheless, that apart, I thought it was a it was a reasonable program. What I what I would have liked to see more of is the story of how it was allowed to happen, because I've never thought of it as an accident. I mean, of course, it was a terrible, terrible, terrible disaster, but accidents. This was an accident that should not have happened. The miners knew. Every single one of them, the men and women with the children who were killed, they knew that this was a real possibility, not not a slight slender possibility. They knew that that tip had been built in the wrong place. There are lots of tips around in the biggest and oldest collieries, but that tip should never have been built there because there was a fault in the hillside. There was there was a, a, a spring in the hillside that the miners knew there's enough muck on top of it and enough rain had fallen. They knew it would render the tip unstable. And on the day that it happened, on the morning that it happened, they had gone up, as they did pretty much every morning, just to check to see how it was. And they saw that their predictions had come absolutely true. There was these millions of gallons of water bubbling up through the tip and turning it into this lethal slurry. They ran back, of course, down the... T- and, uh, well, the rest of it, we, we now know it was far too late for them to do anything. But they had warned the National Coal Board over and over again. The National Coal Board ignored them. The real... The horror of this thing, one of the many horrors of this thing, 
was that although the subsequent inquiry, I remember sitting there at the inquiry listening to Lord Rogers, the so-called chairman of the so-called National Coal Board, being ripped apart, um, quite rightly ripped apart, and his officials, the people who worked for him and the other, all the other big wheels in the coal industry uh, who should have paid heed to what they were being warned, but they didn't, I suspect, because it was economically, it was cheaper to build the collier, the, the, the tip where it was, than to move it further away, because the further away it is, of course, further you've got to shift the waste and all that kind of thing. And I think it was a deliberate decision to save money, uh, even though they had been warned. Um, and the, 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 the shocking thing about it, in my mind anyway, although every single inquiry into it, and there were lots of different sorts of inquiries, of course, but the main inquiry found that they were culpable, uh, culpable <laughs> that the coal board, the Romans himself, the coal board, were culpable. And nobody has ever been prosecuted. Nobody has gone to jail. It, it is to this, to this day, I, I, I find it shocking beyond belief. Shocking. Uh, do, do you think that, that experience of seeing what happens when authorities don't do what they're supposed to do and then lie about it, do you think that informed your, the rest of your journalistic career when coming up against other authority figures and organizations and, and just always having that suspicion they weren't they weren't always being straight with you oh no question about that yeah um i suppose i was always a bit skeptical i um, <laughs> i don't suppose you become a hat do you a journalist in, unless yeah. there's a wee bit of that in you um and every journalist has to has to challenge authority that's primarily once we've told people what's going on our second most important role, I suppose, is to challenge authorities. Uh, I find it quite difficult to to explain um, what happens when when you come across something like this. I mean, I was a kid, you know, I was in my early twenties. I was uh, uh, I wasn't able to make any wise judgments. I don't suppose it was just a sort of incoherent anger. In fact, it's a silly, tiny, trivial thing, but I. Leapt into my car, which um, was parked outside the inquiry when Robins was giving his evidence. And of course, in those days, they didn't have satellites and things. I had to get back to the studio and I jumped into my car. And I was so angry, I reversed out of my parking spot and smashed into somebody else's car and didn't even stop. I hope that person isn't listening, but <laughs> we're on the car. I'm, but, sure uh, they'll, I'm sure they'll forgive you after all these years, John. Well, yeah, it's a while ago, isn't it? Yeah, <laughs> 55 years ago, a long time. But I tell you something, honestly, Matt, the, the, the anger doesn't go away, you know. Uh, and after all, it hasn't, the grief hasn't gone away for those those people, yeah. those brave people who continue to live in the, in, in, in the village. Um, and, and, and the village itself, of course, was torn apart. And the, the awful thing is that you would think that those few people whose children survived, um, it would have been wonderful for them. And of course it was that their children had survived, but their lives were ruined as well, because yeah. I remember talking to the mother of, of one of the children who survived, and I said, oh, it, it must, you know, a, 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 a dreadful tragedy, but for you it must have been, you know, this one. And she said, well, yes, of course it was. Um, of course it was wonderful that my daughter survived, but you know, I've not been able to walk around the village. I've not been able to take part in village life because I can see people, other mothers and fathers, looking at me and thinking, what did she do to deserve the blessing she has had? And, and, and we have paid, our child has paid children in some cases, have paid the ultimate price. It, it was, it was, oh, they, were, they were amazingly brave, those people. They, they are dignified, I think is the word. And you know what? They, they didn't spend their time. So many subsequent disasters, um, um, so many, yeah, disasters. I suppose one yeah. thing's at Hillsborough, apart from the many others. But they didn't um, instantly start demanding compensation. They wanted to find out what had happened and why it had happened. They wanted people to bear the responsibility by people, I mean, the bosses of the coal board, the bosses of their industry. They wanted them to bear some of the agony that they themselves had suffered, and which would affect them, of course, for all their lives. As ever a day goes by, one of them said to me, and I have no trouble believing it, and one of them said to me, there is never a day goes by when we don't relive that, that, uh, that day 
clearly had a huge impact on you as well, you know, journalistically over, over the years. Um, I suppose I should ask you, because it's a couple of years now since you left the Today programme, are you, do, you, do you miss it, um, being a, doing, the, doing the news every day? I don't miss getting up at half past three in the morning. No, <laughs> not particularly. I do get up uh, fairly early on some mornings to do Classic FM, which is the wonderful antidote. I have to say if it's a straight choice between um, interviewing Boris and listening to Beethoven, um, well, what do you think? What do you <laughs> so are you are you not listening to do you not listen to the day program anymore? No, I do listen. Of course I do because I write a column for the Daily Mail on Saturday mornings, and um, so I've got to know what's going on. Uh, but in fact, in fact, I probably listen more closely now um, than I did during the uh, thirty-three years that I was presenting the program and sitting at home when others were presenting. I, I, you know, I, I, yeah, of course I listen to it, of course. But if you're going to ask me whether I think it's got better or worse since my departure, I'm not going to answer the question. <laughs> just, so we, just so we're clear about that. That's the trouble with you. You know the sort of questions I would ask. Well, all right, then I'll ask this, question, this uh, separate question again. As someone who's still relatively new at this radio, Lark, any, any advice? Any advice to you? God yeah. forbid, you're a brilliant journalist. You, 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 you write like a dream. I wish I could write as well as you do. And, um, and, 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 and my advice to you is carry on doing what, what you're good at. That was John Humphreys speaking to me on my Times Radio show. Now, coming up, uh, exactly how has the pandemic changed our politics? We'll do that next on the Redbox Podcast. If you're looking for plump lips that last, you need to know about Juvederm Lip Fillers. With Juvederm Volbella XC and Juvederm Ultra XC, your lip look, whether it's subtle or bold, can last up to one full year with optimal treatment and no additional maintenance. Find a licensed specialist and see if it's right for you at Juvederm.com today. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Add fullness to lips in adults over 21 with Juvederm Volbella XC or Juvederm Ultra XC. Do not use if you have severe allergies or a history of severe allergic reactions, or if you're allergic to lidocaine or the proteins used in Juvederm. Tell your doctor if you have a history of scarring or taking medicines that decrease the body's immune response or that can prolong bleeding. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. As with all fillers, there's a rare risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. For full, important safety information, visit Juvederm.com. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition smart bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. This episode of Politics Without the Boring Bits is brought to you by Luton Rising, owners of London Luton Airport, the UK's most socially impactful airport. Find out more at lutonrising.org.uk. You're listening to the Red Box podcast. Now, how has the pandemic and indeed Brexit actually changed British society? Public attitudes. The British Attitude Survey lays bare the changes to our politics. We're going to look at the five key ways in which our society is changing. Historically, last year ranks as a biggie in all sorts of ways. But has the pandemic and Brexit combined to actually change British society and public attitudes? Well, the British Attitudes Survey lays bare how the pandemic has changed our politics. So we're going to look at the five key ways in which we might have changed our minds. I'm joined on the line by Gillian Pryor, who's a Deputy Chief Executive at the National Centre for Social Research. Hi, Gillian. Hi. And we've also got uh, Professor John Curtis, Senior Fellow at the National Centre for Social Research and, of course, Professor of Politics at the University of Strathclyde. Morning, John. Good morning to you, Matt. So uh, before we, we, we go diving straight in, Gillian, just describe what is the British Attitude Survey and did, did the pandemic have an impact on how you actually carry it out? 
Yes, yeah, should I start with that? So British Social Attitudes, it's an annual survey that's been carried out by the National Centre for Social Research since 1983. Um, and until 2020, it was carried out by face-to-face -face interviewers going into people's homes to ask the questions. And in 2020, 2020, of course, we weren't able to do that because of the pandemic restrictions. And so we carried out the survey using an online methodology, um, but still very carefully controlled in terms of how we constructed the sample and how we encouraged people who weren't online to take part and gave opportunities for telephone interviews if they couldn't do a web survey, for example. So we've done all we can to maintain the sort of rigour and quality of the study, but the, the methodology did change in 2020. Uh, and when we look back over 38, 39 years, what have been the big trends? Before we look at what's happened in the past year, what are the big trends that you've seen in the last sort of four decades? Well, uh, John, do you want to do you want to pick up? Yeah, on that? sure. I oh, mean, yeah, the John, big, yeah. The, yeah, the biggest tre trend, Matt, you know, over a, a long period of time, is in our attitudes towards some of the issues of sexuality and sexual mores. So. You know, when British social attitudes started back in the 1980s, more of us were saying that, you know, sexual relationships between two adults of the, uh, of the same sex were wrong. They were saying it was right. Now, um, as you know, uh, people are very highly critical of anybody questions at all uh, the legitimacy of same-sex relationships. And more broadly as a society, if we kind of leave aside immigration, um, then we have tended to become rather more liberal on social issues, you know, do with sexuality, abortion, etc. That undoubtedly, I think, is the biggest trend that we've identified over what is now nearly 40 years worth of, of uh, attitudinal research. So that's what's happened over the last 40 years. Let, let's dive in then and look at what's happened over the last uh, year or so uh, as a result of the pandemic. Here we go with change number one. Uh, don't worry, you're going to hear that a lot. So um, the, the pandemic seems to have sort of ignited or reignited a debate about inequality in Britain that maybe had sort of slipped off the agenda a bit, John. Yeah, of course, the, there was a lot of discussion, still continuing discussion during the pandemic, about the way it was thought to have exposed some of the inequalities in our society and that, and that indeed... You know, people in living areas of multiple deprivation, uh, people from a black and minority ethnic background, for example, were more likely to suffer serious mortality and morbidity uh, from the pandemic than were those in more affluent uh, circumstances. And, you know, we had various debates, so not least pushed by Marcus Rashford, about some of the inequality in our society. So, interestingly, it does look as though um, we are now somewhat more likely to say Britain's unequal. I'll give, give quote you one example. We've got a question that we've asked every year since the mid-1980s. Do you agree or disagree that ordinary working people do not get their fair share of the nation's wealth? Well, if we go to our 2019 survey done before the pandemic, 57% agreed with that, uh, 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 with that statement, which was pretty much in line with what it's been for the last 20 years or so, ever since the late 90s. Uh, but this year, it, it's 64%. Um, and other indicators suggest you know, there's been just a slightly increased appreciation of inequality. However, two caveats. Number one is when we start to ask people about, you know, should the government redistribute income and wealth from the better off to the less well off? Well, that's gone up a bit, but so also has the proportion of people who disagree with that statement. So it's not entirely clear that we've moved from perception to greater support for governmental action. And the other thing to say is that even at the current more elevated levels, the perceptions of, that we're an unequal society are no greater now than they were during the era of uh, Margaret Thatcher. Uh, and Herbert Conservative administration. So it's difficult to argue that we're looking at a set of attitudes on this subject that are completely different from anything that we've experienced in the last 40 years. And I suppose, yeah, the concern about inequality doesn't necessarily read across to, therefore, the left uh, necessarily does better. Gillian, just when we're talking about numbers, and, you know, this has got that one going up from 57 to 64, 
what because sometimes people get a bit overexcited there's a shift in a poll and it's you know it's one point either way what do you consider when you look at these things sort of st- statistically significant uh before we start getting overexcited yeah, well, obviously, all the findings that we'll be quoting will be ones where we, we've seen a statistically significant change. But typically for our measures, we're looking at sort of plus or minus 3% being the margin of error around a particular estimate. So that gives you an idea of the range of, of differences you're looking at to be able to say that something is a significant change. Yes, so we don't all get too overexcited. OK, don't we'll <laughs> press on. Uh, this is change number two. Right, so this one is, uh, this is more of a continuation of a trend, but is a real about turn from where politics was before. A, a more favourable attitude towards the unemployed, John. Talk us through the numbers. Yeah, um, this is something which we might have thought would have changed during the pandemic, um, because, of course, at least early on, we thought that the pandemic was going to result in a high level of unemployment. And certainly a lot of people suddenly found their jobs were precarious, um, albeit... Uh, the effects being mitigated by um, the uh, by the furlough scheme, and of course now we seem to be finding ourselves with an extraordinarily tight labour market. But anyway, early on there were lots of concern about unemployment. Now, as it happens, this is a topic, as you already suggested, where attitudes were already changing um, during the era of New Labour, and indeed in the early years of the Conservative Liberal Democrat administration we had pretty unfavorable attitudes towards those of working age. We thought older people, we were all in favor of increased retirement pensions, but we were pretty uh, unfavorable in our attitudes towards the unemployed and unemployment benefit. Well, that was already beginning to change before the pandemic. Um, and that uh, trend has just simply continued. So again, just uh, uh, to note, um, uh, uh, back in tw- before the pandemic, 51% of us said that most unemployed people could find a job if they really wanted one. Um, uh, that's now actually slipped even lower to 42%. But that 51% figure was already well down, for example, on the 69% who took that view uh, back in 2005. So I think the story here, Matt, it's not so much that the pandemic suddenly made us say, oh gosh, actually, you know, the unemployed really do need to be looked after, but rather as a society, we were already questioning the level of provision for those who find themselves to be unemployed. And that therefore the fact that the government suddenly had to intervene in the labor market with unprecedented levels of support, albeit we didn't call it welfare, we called it furlough, um, was actually feeding into a mood that had already changed and it was already saying, well, actually, perhaps we should be doing more about unemployed. And perhaps this also helps to explain why there's been quite a controversy about the reduction of by 20 pounds in universal credit uh, uh, at the um, end of the furlough scheme. Um, so uh, here, as it were, therefore, as it were, in a sense, fortunately for the government, given what it had to do, we already thought that perhaps more of this should be happening. But again, caveat, we still don't have as favourable an attitude towards the unemployed as we did in Margaret Thatcher's day, when, of course, unemployment did for a while rise to very high levels indeed. So again, not clear that as a society we are radically different now from what we were before the pandemic, but certainly it's a change of note and a change that probably governments of whatever colour in the next few years are probably going to have to be aware that perhaps we think Actually, not everybody who's on welfare is a scrounger, not to put too fine a point on it. But that is quite a shift, isn't it, from the sort of the, the George Osborne era of you can't be tough enough on uh, yeah, welfare. It's not just the George Osborne era, Matt. The, 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 the era, the, the thing that changed our attitudes towards welfare was the new Labour government. Uh, attitudes mm. changed very sharply under the government because, of course, it was that government that was very keen on saying that welfare should be a means into work and was highly critical of the amount of money that was spent on on welfare by uh, Mrs Thatcher's administration. It's the new Labour that changed attitudes towards welfare. It's more recently, only more recently, that that attitude and that attitudinal change has been reversed. Well, that's the attitude towards... uh, It just goes to show that things aren't locked in. Um, uh, These things can change. Okay, let's move on to change number three. 
Right, uh, change number three is about uh, the change in way that we work. We just talked about people who are not in work. Let's talk about people who are in work. Gillian Pryor um, shifts in the way that, that, that almost uh, the attitude of the relationship between the employee and the employer. Yes, that's right. So so um, through COVID, we saw massive changes to our, the way we work, obviously. So the furloughing, as we've already discussed, threat of unemployment. But of course, many people who were still in a job were suddenly working from home. Um, and for many people, this was, was, was a new thing for them. And certainly this seems to have encouraged people to back a more flexible approach to work. So for example, we've seen now that 68% now think employers should allow someone who's been ill to have a phase return to work compared with 55% when we asked that in, in 2019. And at the same time, 59% now say employees, employers should allow an employee with a health condition to work from home, up from 51% pre-pandemic. So I think we're really seeing people's own experiences of working from home and seeing that that can work successfully is making them more open-minded about working arrangements for others going forward. I suppose the big question is, is this the one a blip or is it a, you know, would it be permanently baked in that actually as employers start telling people to come back to the office and that sort of thing, does that relationship tip back in the other direction? Or if it sounds to me like if it's so widespread, this opinion that actually employers might have to, you know, if you want to retain people and recruit people, they might have to take this sort of thing on board. Yeah, well, I think that's right. And I think another finding we have is that it's the younger workers, so the 18 to 35s, who've really become markedly more likely to say employers should be more flexible um, for people with health conditions at work. So there's certainly an, an, an indication that uh, the younger workforce in particular are going to be expecting more flexibility from employers going forwards. And young people also have sort of different attitudes about uh, the impact that work has on their health. Yes, well, um, this is an interesting finding as well. So we found um, that more people than ever now think that paid work is very good for people's health, and particularly for their mental health, but also their physical health. Um, and as you say, again, it's the, the younger people who are most likely to say the work is very good for people's health. Um, and I think, again, this is an example of, of the pandemic experience. And I think, firstly, the threats to people's work have highlighted the impact on mental health that that can have. So the threat of unemployment, for example, can have big impacts on mental health but also I think as we've been going back to work um, been recognizing the value of work as a social activity um, and the importance of actually work for, uh, for having the social contact with our colleagues and so on and that there's a well-being impact of, of actually being in work and being in the office um, as well so I think yeah we're, we're seeing that shift in terms of people recognizing the value that work can have for their mental and physical health. And I suppose the the experience, particularly for people who were able to work from home, uh, the the experience between ages. You know, if you were in a small flat, um, you trapped during lockdown, your 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 experience of working from home and the impact on your health and your mental health is probably very different. If you had a nice garden and all that sort of stuff, so that's probably how that probably had an impact as well. Um, we are taking a look at the British Attitude Survey and how uh, public attitudes, uh, political attitudes, have been changed during the pandemic over the last 18 months. We'll do some more of that in just a moment. It's Matt Jolly on Times Radio in association with MasterCard Strive, empowering small businesses for a digital future. Phil Williams, tonight from 7 on Times Radio. It's a very musical show tonight. Nicola Davis will join us at 8 o'clock for Pastimes and the week's big music stories. And then at 8.30, strap in for Luke and Danny of Rock Giants Thunder. Thunder are back on tour throughout November with a spoken word and acoustic music tour entitled The First 50 Years. Luke Morley and Danny Bowes of Thunder join us at 8.30 tonight. And I'll have the day's top news stories for you from 7. Phil Williams, tonight from 7 on Times Radio. Matt Chorley on Times Radio with Strive UK from MasterCard. Empowering small businesses for a digital future. Find out more at mastercard.co.uk slash strive. You see, that was another musical, funky trail from um, Phil Williams, competing with Kate Balsey. Uh, 
who can get the most music on their trails? We don't do that enough. Anyway, uh, this is Matt Jolly on Times Radio. I'm joined still on the line by Gillian Pryor, who's Deputy Chief Executive of the National Centre for Social Research, and Sir John Curtis, who's a Senior Fellow there and Professor of Politics at the University of Strathclyde. We're taking a look at the British Attitude Survey and the impact that the pandemic has had on political attitudes. Uh, we're taking a look at the top five changes. This is number four. Okay, question, uh, change number four is we have a more questioning outlook, a slightly different attitude to maybe towards authority, law and order, that sort of thing, John. Yeah, well, as we said earlier, Matt, uh, in the first part of this conversation, you know, one of the big long-term trends that British socialists picked up is that we've become rather more liberal on sexual issues, moral issues, and that also extends to things like the death penalty, whether or not we should have censorship. But it also extends to another area which perhaps is rather more pertinent to some of the debates about the pandemic, because, of course, the pandemic did result in the government um, controlling our social and our personal lives to an unprecedented extent uh, in order to try and stop the spread of the pandemic during the lockdown and you know that raises questions about whether or not it might also have uh, furthered this trend towards a, a more questioning outlook about law and conformity and authority and the answer does seem to be that it has done so for example just before the pandemic only 23 percent of us disagreed that the law should always be obeyed even if a particular law is wrong now we're finding that the number is at around 31-32%. And other questions like, you know, should schools teach children to obey, obey authority? Again, uh, you know, that number has fallen by uh, 10 points during the course of the pandemic. So this is something where there already was an existing trend. You know, some of it is a very, very long-lasting trend. But it looks as though the pandemic and the debates about uh, law and authority, etc., and whether or not the state went too far, um, perhaps has led us to be willing to question even more about whether or not necessarily what the law says and what authority says is always right. It's really interesting that because obviously one of the early debates about uh, in the early stages of the pandemic was the uh, the the original view was Brits would not put up with being told to lock down, and then the the sort of um, willingness to do as we were told was was much higher than expected but actually maybe over the course of last year we've we've all thought a bit more about our, our relationship with the with the state and authority and that sort of thing right we yeah, move sure, on yeah, after sure, no, go on, one of the reasons one of the reasons why people might be questioning the laws that sometimes they might be thinking the law is too lax i don't think we can necessarily assume uh, that from this uh, all the people who, yeah, are, yeah, yeah. who are who are giving these answers are lockdown skeptics some of them may be saying well actually I think that the government are uh, saying that I can do X or Y is not right. So as in the, the live debate, which is happening now on, you know, you don't have to wear masks. Well, people might say that therefore the law is wrong. That's interesting. I hadn't thought of it that way. Right, we move on then. The, the, the last change. OK, then, uh, John Curtis, this is all. This is the big one. Brexit, the pandemic and trust in the government. Yeah, well, of course, uh, we so far focused on COVID, and that was one of the two big events of 2020. We've all tended to forget that the other big event of 2020, just a few weeks before the pandemic, was that the United Kingdom finally left the European Union after three or four years of a elongated and sometimes highly contentious, contentious Brexit, Brexit process. Now, one of the things that certainly we all said during the course of the Brexit process and the 2019 British Social Activist Survey confirmed is that this process had undermined our trust in government and our feelings about how well we were being governed. Um, the question therefore arises is well, well, what happened during the pandemic, particularly not least because during the pandemic, the government needed us to have some trust in it in order to, indeed to be trusting its judgment about the pandemic and therefore to follow what it says. Well, what have we discovered? Well, we've just certainly discovered that trust in government has gone back up. So, for example, whereas in 2019, only 15% of us 
said that we trust governments of any party to put the needs of the nation above the interests of their party, you know, just about always or most of the time. Um, that figure, it's not ginormous, but it's up to 23%, and it is higher than we've recorded any time since 2007. Equally, we're now rather more likely to say that the way in which Britain is governed doesn't really need a great deal of improvement, around a third of us. Now take that view as opposed to a fifth back in 2019. However, the reason for this doesn't certainly seem to be anything to do with the pandemic. Concern about the pandemic doesn't seem to be related to trust in government. And it does seem to have everything to do with Brexit. Because virtually all of the increase that we have registered in people saying that they now trust the government, they now think the way we're governed doesn't need a great deal of improvement. Virtually all of the improvement has occurred amongst Leave voters. Um, in other words, it looks as though very much like a partisan response and that Leave voters are saying, well, I know at last the UK government's done something good. It's delivered Brexit and we now think we're being governed quite well. But amongst Remain voters, the level of dissatisfaction, concern and mistrust is still pretty much at the level that it was uh, uh, before the delivery of Brexit. Um, now, this is remarkable in one sense, because we, one of the things we've been able to do in this report is actually go back 20 years and compare the levels of trust in government amongst those people who at that stage were sceptical about the EU and many of whom would have gone on eventually to vote leave, and those who said, no, 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 no the EU is fine, we should, we should keep it as it is. Now, if you go back even 20 years ago, people who were Eurosceptics were more likely to say they didn't trust government, were more likely to say that uh, the way we were in government needed to be improved. Whereas it was people who were Europhiles who went, yeah, no, it's fine, it's fine. So that long-term relationship was there, it was there all the way through to the referendum, has now been turned around. And we are now a society where we still have a half of us who are not very happy about government, but it's now a different half. It's the people who voted Remain. And so although on the one hand, this might sound like good news, yeah, you know, that uh, decline of trust in government, and there's a lot of people who say, you know, we don't trust politicians anymore, et cetera. You know, a lot of that has been reversed, but it's only been reversed at the expense of creating a new division, and that therefore that division between Remainers and Leavers, it's got a different character, but it's still very much there. I suppose that what that tells us, John, is that sometimes we see a, a headline figure in a, in a poll which shows no real change. Actually, there can be quite a lot of change and churn going on underneath that. If you, you need to, That's why you need to break it down by previous vote or gender or geography. The, yeah, and the truth is that's particularly true of our politics at the moment, Matt, because the truth is that on loads and loads of questions, Remain voters give you one answer and Leave voters give you another. So, for example, if you take the argument at the moment about, you know, what is the role of Brexit versus coronavirus in the shortages in the shops and the lorry drivers, etc. Well, surprise, surprise, Remain voters are markedly more likely than Leave voters to say that it's Brexit that was responsible. So when you look at the headline figure, which might say that a third of us think of us as Brexit and a third of us think of it's the coronavirus, actually the crucial thing is that one half of us who voted Remain think it's Brexit and the other half of us who voted Leave think it's coronavirus. It's fascinating stuff. It's really good to speak to you um, uh, and pick over all of the changes. There were so many more. Julie uh, uh, Pye, if, if people want to have a rootle around in the British Attitude Survey uh, themselves, how can they do that? Yes, so it's all available on our website, which is www.natsend.ac.uk, and you can download all the details of the report there, including detailed chapters on all the topics we've been discussing. Fantastic. Really good to speak to you. Gillian Pryor, Deputy Chief Executive at the National Centre for Social Research. And Professor John Curtis, who's a senior fellow there and Professor of Politics at the University of Strathclyde. Thanks both for joining us. Well, that's it for this episode of Red Box. Uh, if you've enjoyed it, don't forget to subscribe wherever you get your podcast from. Maybe even leave us a rating because it helps with the mumbo-jumbo charts. We release an episode every day, Monday to Thursday, featuring the best bits of my Times radio show. You can listen to the whole thing. Uh, Monday to Thursday, 10 till 1, is available on DAB online via smart speaker or on the Times radio app. If you want to read more about all of the stories we've been discussing, then go to times.radio forward slash subscribe.
This episode of Politics Without the Boring Bits is brought to you by Luton Rising, owners of London Luton Airport, the UK's most socially impactful airport. Find out more at lutonrising.org.uk. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. And if you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. It streamlines your processes to make your business more efficient, which makes you less busy. Mail checks, invoices, legal documents, and everything you need to keep your business running with Stamps.com. Seamlessly connect with every major marketplace and shopping cart. Schedule package pickups and see your cheapest and fastest shipping options from different carriers. With rates up to 89% off USPS and UPS rates. And with the Stamps.com mobile app, you can take care of mailing and shipping wherever you are. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Sign up with code PROGRAM for a 4-week trial, plus free postage and a free digital scale. No long-term commitments or contracts. That's Stamps.com. Code PROGRAM.